This is The Social Geek Radio Network. Get ready for a dose of positivity with a side of sass. It's Stay Effing Positive, brought to you by the fearless franchise consultants at Stay in Your Lane. Our mission? It's simple to change the status quo and bring some much-needed empathy to the franchise world. Don't be fooled by our warm, fuzzy approach. We've got the expertise to help your business succeed. We love taking good brands to cult brands. So put on your seatbelts, grab a snack, and join us on this journey to make the franchise world a better place, one episode at a time. Stay positive and stay in your lane. Hi, Brad. Hey, I'm uh, digging your sweatshirt. <laughs> Thank you very much. You want to tell people what it says so they they know. Yes, since we're not says, on video. <laughs> For those who can't see, it says I'm pretty cool, but I cry a lot. I think I love true. that. Everyone can't see us, but we can see us, which is great. It's nice to see you today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. It is my sweatshirt is true. I haven't cried yet today, though. I did get verklempt <laughs> yesterday, not quite a cry in our lean in group meeting, which is pretty normal. I was just touched. I get emotional and I'm yeah. super thankful for the way that the franchise community, especially that group just supports us. So yeah. verklempt isn't it's, bad, right? No, no. If I had a dime for every time I cried at work, I would be rich. <laughs> I have another shirt that says I cry at work. It's from shop Bando, which I love that. Oh, totally, totally normal. Anyway, I update my wardrobe. Yeah, we should. I don't think they sell it anymore, but I'll look for it for you. Dang. Okay. I'm super, I'm super excited about today um, and Amanda coming yeah. on. So Amanda has been a friend for a long time and is a trauma specialist. And um, the conversations that I've been able to have with her over the years have just been amazing. And I think that she'll add a lot to this. So yeah, it's a trauma. Trauma at work is a a big topic. And I think it's one that people are maybe afraid of a lot of vulnerability and vulnerability in the workplace and what that looks like. So I'm really excited to learn. I'm excited to learn too. Mostly I love the way that she breaks things down and I'll let her do that, but I'm excited to just talk about this and be vulnerable and also to kind of destigmatize trauma in the workplace. I know that you and yeah. I were having a conversation yesterday about it and you think that well, you can tell me what you said. I, I won't speak for you about how everyone paused. Do you remember that conversation? <laughs> I was just trying to think, you know. <laughs> you basically told me I'm, that if everyone paused, they would think about work, yes. work that you would think yes. that everyone has been traumatized at work. Some, some yes, that's what it was. You know, just, I think if we all took a step back and really looked at our day to day and the things that we've been through in the workplace, we'd realize just how much trauma actually occurs at work. You think about conversations around boundaries, for example, is a great one. And a lot of times we talk about boundaries with our friends or with our family, even you see the people at work in some cases more than you even see your own family. Right. So we have to figure out some of those coping mechanisms and tools. And I am excited to see what Amanda has to share today that talks about that and addresses that. And I think that would be sort of a, a challenge I would give everyone as they're listening to this episode and afterwards is really sit down and, and think about your career and, and your time in different jobs and what 
lessons you learned or maybe habits that you picked up good and bad from those different job opportunities that you've had? We are so lucky to have Amanda Purvis join us today. Um, She is from the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at Texas Christian University. I'm proud to call her my friend. We've been friends for how many years, Amanda? So many. We're Um, so old. We're so old. Don't don't, don't tell people that. Um, (laughs) But um, have watched her grow into one of the most amazing trauma educators that I've ever seen and excited to talk to her today. So let's get into this. I don't think there's like an easy way to like start talking about trauma at work. It's kind of a brutal subject. <laughs> yeah, mostly you just have to dive right in. Hi, everyone. Have you been triggered? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we've had some great conversations. Where I'd like to start, Amanda, is that we've all been triggered at work. And I'd love to know like why that is and how that happens. Honestly, um, we've all been triggered, period, right? That's part of the human experience, um, is being triggered. And so once we begin to understand our brains and our bodies, um, through the lens of our history and through development, then it helps to make sense of the why. And then once we understand the why, then we can figure out the how, which is usually extremely personal for each of us. Um, but I want to first talk about like attachment Um, because the way that we attach and the way that we learned to attach created relational patterns for us really in the first two years of our life, that was kind of cemented for us if we haven't done any of our own work since then. So when we talk about work relationships, unfortunately, we believe that we can really act different at work than we do at home, but that's actually a lie that we all tell ourselves because those relational patterns happen for us in every relationship that we're in. Um, And so with that being said, oftentimes our triggers um, come from those relational interactions that we have at work. And so part of understanding the why goes back to figuring out how were those patterns created for each of us in our own childhoods. So that's the first thing. Then understanding kind of the what, which is once we understand those patterns, then we can understand what happens in our brain and body. So when we're talking about like a true trauma trigger, um, what we actually know that happens in our brains and bodies is that our brains release neurochemicals to truly kind of detach the cortex part of our brain, that thinking, rational, reasoning, um, relationally smart part of our brain is becomes detached when those neurochemicals are released. And we go into that kind of downstairs brain or that fight, flight, or freeze response that ultimately we don't have a lot of um, We don't have a lot of control over how that happens or when that happens. Um, We do have control over what we do once it happens. Um, And so when that happens in our bodies, right? Maybe for me, um, I get triggered at work uh, because somebody comes up behind me in the copy room and bumps against me joking around, but I didn't know they were there. And that triggers my body to go into that fight, flight, or freeze. Um, for me, I know that my pattern is usually fight. So like, if that happens to me and someone's joking around and I don't know it and they scare me and push me or something, I'm going to turn around and most likely sock them in the face. 
Um, like that's, <laughs> that's what I'm yeah. going to do. Um, suddenly we have like a really big issue, <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> because my colleague was like, Whoa, I was, I was just joking around. Yeah. 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 Um, but because of maybe my history, what my body remembers from things like that happening in my past and from the way then that my brain and body were wired, I responded in a way that maybe looked to my colleague, like I completely overreacted to that situation. Um, but it's important for us to understand that first of all, for ourselves, gives ourselves compassion for ourselves that I didn't I didn't think, oh, I want to cause drama right now. I'm going to punch my colleague in the face. Um, but also for others around us to understand, we're not really making rational decisions when we go into that fight, flight, or freeze. The way we respond after, we are responsible for. And so, you know, kind of coming out of that, and that's really kind of some of our own work. Amanda, I was a soccer player in high school, which unfortunately means I've had well over, I think, seven concussions now in my life. Um, unfortunately, that means I've got extra you know, cortisol. I, I find myself in this fight or flight or freeze mode a lot in over really ordinary situations. We both, Ingrid and I work in franchising, and part of that job is supporting a lot of franchisees when you work for the franchisor. And sometimes they have some urgent project that they might need help with when you could be working on XYZ other things and they happen to send you the wrong email at the wrong time of day or you know maybe call you too many times. And sometimes I find that it just causes this knee-jerk reaction. I'm, I'm a very, very kind person, a very patient person, but sometimes weird things will set me off like that. And so, you know, can you maybe speak a little bit to what the chain reaction looks like when a situation like that happens in the workplace, how we can maybe damage control a little bit or what's going on in our brains there. And, and you know, as, as a group, I'd love if the three of us could talk about how people can maybe communicate better to avoid those issues or what strategies around that look like. Yeah, those um, responses are Yes, absolutely. Probably a result of your history of concussions and things like that, as well as possibly some of the relational pieces that we've all experienced, right? So when I hear that story, one of the things that I think about is um, when I was younger and I was rushed by my parents, right? So like being on time or um, I like I can see my dad's face when he would say <laughs> over and over again, like, your lack of planning is not my emergency. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I would come to him as a young child or as a, you know, young adult, like with, uh, you know, the, the typical thing that happens for kids, I need a poster board tonight, you know, or yeah. I need, um, <laughs> and so his response, um, would has literally been wired and patterned into my brain. So when we think through, um, like those, dynamics that happen in the workplace where someone is, you know, pushing for something right away and it triggers that thing in us, or we respond and it wasn't the person at all, right? It might not mm -hmm. have been the other person. Yeah. It might've just been us and we had a bad day or we were triggered by something that was, and we respond. I would say, um, the first thing to understand is that chain reaction in our brains and bodies that there is this wiring. Um, but with that, to understand that it's never ever too late to to rewire 
our brains and bodies. Um, within the past 10 to 15 years, there's been a ton of research that that has come out around the plasticity of the brain or the fact that it's never too late to make some of these changes and especially these kind of response and behavioral response changes um, mm -hmm. through the rewiring. And so what, what we teach um, is that like we have to actually do a redo um, and take our brains and bodies through the experience again, but respond the way that we want to respond normally. So let's say like, let's okay. play out your scenario where mm -hmm. somebody sends the last you know, the last email that breaks the back, right? <laughs> and you quit back right away. Um, as soon as you kind of realize I shouldn't have sent that email or yep. I shouldn't have put it in all caps or <laughs> <laughs> right. Like whatever it was, or I shouldn't have texted her after that email, you know, whatever it might be. Um, as soon as you kind of realize it, the way that we can change our future behavior is to call it right then. So, um, theoretically within two to three seconds, we should kind of come out of that if we are in a safe space, um, and realize. And so as soon as that happens, we need to send a response. So let's say I quit back with an all caps email. Um, and then like, as soon as I hit send, I'm like, oopsie, <laughs> um, I need to immediately reply all and say, please forgive me. I should not yeah. have sent that email. I, you know, and this is my redo and then rewrite the email and mm -hmm. literally just own it in that moment. Um, most likely if you work with adults, they are not like, they're all going to be like, yeah, that was me yesterday. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. Right. And so there it's, um, if you own it right away and, and do that redo, um, and you're working with emotionally intelligent human beings who have some time yeah. under their belt. Um, that's it. That that's going to be the end of it. But what will happen is your brain and body just had. So when we like in our brains, when a happens, we're wired to do B. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's literally neural connections. And the more often that when a happens, we do B those neural connections become faster and faster. So it kind of goes from like being like a trail in the woods to like a highway. Um, and so every time that we create a new B, right? Or like a, oh, I'm rewriting that email and responding a different way. Um, mm -hmm. We've just made a new neural connection. And what happens is not only do we make that new neural connection, but then if someone says, wow, thanks for sending that. That really meant a lot to me. Or, hey, I get it. I had a rough day yesterday. Or you get any sort of positive feedback. And this is where that, um, that supervisory role can really come into effect when we're talking about how do we supervise and understand trauma. When we can offer positive feedback for a redo or the the correct response to something, mm -hmm. um, we actually go through that neural connection again. So it's as if you just responded the correct way again in your brain. And this is why positive feedback is much more effective than negative feedback. Um, and so when we give ourselves positive feedback, right? So you can that night at dinner when you're having a glass of wine, instead of berating yourself about sending the email, say, I'm really glad I, I redid that. And, yeah. and that was good. I know that was humbling and that was hard for me, but that was, you know, and you're kind of talking yourself through the day you've gone mm -hmm. over that again, 
if you get positive feedback from a colleague or a supervisor, you've gone through it again. And so eventually that is how we change our responses to behaviors. Let me ask um, you this, Amanda. What if I'm in a role and I do that and I have a redo, but my leadership team or the C-suite team really admonishes me for that and kind of berates me. What would you say I should respond to then? How do I change that? How do I react again by being triggered, by being berated, yeah. right? Like how do you kind of unwind that? I think more often than not, I've been in situations where I've made a mistake and asked for forgiveness and I still get in trouble, right? So how do we as leaders, A, do that better and different? And how do we react if we don't get the results that we need in that apology letter? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, quite the question, Ingrid. (laughs) (laughs) I think the first thing is... um, This is a new way of being Mm -hmm. Um, in the sense that like when we own our stuff, that isn't something that was necessarily uh, modeled for most of us in generations past. And so as we begin to chart new territories, there's going to be those tensions. So when I, as, as an employee, make a mistake and apologize and my supervisor still admonishes me or provides critique or things like that. Um, first of all, I need to hear it. Um, like I can't like, and so that like knowing that, like, that's part of what we're working through too. Right. So when I send that apology, I need to be talking to myself and having self-talk of, Hey, if they're still upset, they have a reason to be upset. I responded incorrectly and I need to just apologize again when they call me or when I have that meeting or whatever it might be where they follow up. Um, and then, (laughs) then we get into like the, there's also an unhealthy part of that, that (laughs) obviously you would want to create a boundary there, right? Like, I'm not saying you Mm -hmm. let people berate you over and over and over again. Um, but there is, it's interesting because over time, and if you work with people for any length of time, um, and you have an opportunity to do what we call in science air and repair, um, you will see that relationship change and you will see that they will become more um, willing to not only forgive, but also ask for forgiveness. Cause, and we actually see that relational connection and those things strengthen in the brain with air and repair. Um, and so whether they want to or not, by going through these cycles, um, if we can remain calm and not, you know, trigger them and those types of things, um, we can actually see their brains begin to change whether they want them to or not in fMRIs. That's cool. What's an fMRI? It's a functional MRI. So basically like when, when you're awake and like, we're watching your brain move. And so like, we can see like the relational parts of the brain, um, up in certain parts of the prefrontal cortex and in these temporal lobes and things, um, strengthen and become, um, like there, there's more movement and energy in them, um, after an air and repair, uh, and it happens over and over and over again. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're telling me and us is that basically if we do the right thing, we apologize and we're modeling to them the air and repair, that it's also going to rewire their brain at the same time it's rewiring our brain. That's what I mean by relational patterns. Um, It's 
this idea of us all being one and being connected mm-hmm. and our energies and our understanding, it's, it's actually science. Um, and we can see it. And here's like maybe the most visceral example I've recently had of this, where even if I don't want to be, um, influenced by other people, I can feel it in my body. Um, here's, so I was on an airplane, um, and they came over the loudspeaker and basically gave us bad news. Um, like, oh, man. We've had, you know, like we've had, it. Want to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, and, and I literally saw both of you, like your bodies react to that. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you've ever been in an airplane and gotten bad news, whether it was safety or even like a delay, or we have to go back to the gate or right. Like you can literally feel the atmosphere in the airplane change. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in this recent incident, I knew like everything's going to be fine. And it actually didn't mess up my travel plans, what was going to happen. So I had already kind of like talked myself through this and been like, this is actually not a crisis for you. Like you do not need to be upset by this. But as I sat in that airplane and felt other people began to experience this crisis for themselves, I couldn't help but feel my heart rate increase, feel my blood pressure increase, have to wiggle around in my seat, drink more water, right? I felt all these things happening because whether my body wants to or not, we respond to one another and because we're relational beings, that's how we've stayed alive, right? So if if I'm sitting next to you and you're scared, I need to be scared too. Otherwise, I won't stay alive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how we're created to be. Um, and so it works both ways. We yeah. share in both our calming energy and both our forgiveness and both, right? And all of those things. And we also share um, and that excited energy or that nervous energy or the, the, that fear. Um, and so understanding that that energy exchange is happening no matter what. Yeah. That concept kind of, um, reminds me a lot not to, um, re bring up what we've, <laughs> the world's been through the last few years, but, uh, uh, I, you know, around that time was a, a newer leader on an executive team and found myself kind of looking and thinking, oh gosh, okay, how, how do I respond to this when you have employees looking at you in a stressful situation, um, you know, franchisees, whoever the stakeholder might be. And my, my boss was kind of explaining to me this concept about how when you're a leader in a company, you're almost like a parent to a child and what your body language is, what you're saying, what you're radiating basically will trickle down and, and people are looking to you for comfort. And so finding ways to radiate, whether it's, you know, a sense of, of being calm or, of, okay, we're going to buckle down and be innovative and figure something out similar concept. Yes. Absolutely. And there's, um, like a power dynamic, I think that you're speaking to like specifically for supervisors or those in management positions where, um, your energy matters more. And that's just the bottom line, just like in a parent child relationship, the parent is ultimately responsible for the energy exchange, um, because of the power dynamic. And so understanding how this plays into, um, the workplace and supervisory roles is huge. Can you give us some examples of how, like, if I'm an 
a leader, a lot of our leader, our listeners are C-suite officers, um, leadership kind of roles in these companies. Um, how do I put out trauma fires um, and help like address them to change the whole, like if I'm the parent, like Brett said, how do I deal with those fires with my staff, with my franchisees? Like what is the what is the best way to address them? And basically, like we talk about toxic positivity, but like we also want to be empathetic, right? So like, mm-hmm. how do I deal with people when they're in the middle of those fight flight kind of responses? And like, what's my best game plan as a leader? Watching them, trying not to absorb that energy, but also being empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bunch there. <laughs> I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about. <laughs> Two specific things, which are felt safety and then um, like our role when someone's in fight, flight, or freeze. So the first thing is overall, when we're talking about, you know, being in a leadership position within an organization, um, if we do not create felt safety within our teams, within our organization, within our workplace, um, we will absolutely have people who are being triggered and having trauma responses constantly. Um, And so creating felt safety for our employees has to be top priority. So what does felt safety mean? Felt safety does not mean, um, hey, I know you're safe here. Like our doors are locked or we're in a safe neighborhood or, um, hey, we've got a lot of money in the bank. Don't worry about losing your job. You're, you know, it's none of those things. Felt safety can only be expressed by the person who feels it for themselves and within themselves. So, What that means is we are creating environments where people feel safe for themselves and within themselves. What do we need to feel safe? We need basic things met. So for example, we need to know that like finances aren't a thing, or we need to know that um, if I, if I make a mistake, my job isn't on the line. If, if you run an organization where people are afraid all the time, brain science shows you absolutely will not get the best out of your employees. You won't. You will not get their most creative selves. You will not get their kindest selves. You will not get their smartest selves because they're operating in a lower function of their brain when they're afraid. Um, So making sure that there's those types of felt safety. But the other thing that's required for felt safety is voice. I have to know as an individual um, that if I come to you and use my words to express a need that I have, that you will respond. It doesn't mean that your answer will be, yeah, absolutely, or sure, you can have an extra five weeks vacation, or that's not (laughs) what I'm saying. Um, But what I'm saying is for me to feel safe, I have to know that if I come to you, my leader, my supervisor, my boss, my colleague, that you will listen to me and that you will hear what I have to say. And there's what we talk about in the attachment world of, I will be seen safe and secure. So I can come to you um, and, and receive those three things. So when I know that I can go to my supervisor and have a conversation and be seen safe and secure within that conversation, then I feel safe in the workplace. So that's the first thing um, when it comes to like, how do we prevent this or and how do we deal with this in the workplace is we have to create felt safety. If your employees are afraid of you, you're going to deal with this all the time. That's the bottom yeah. line. Um, then this, 
are you wanting to say something, Ingrid? I feel like. No, I'm just I mean, I'm <laughs> thinking about like, also like my responses as a, not even a leader, but like as a, an empathetic coworker and, mm-hmm. you know, like it just, it just conversation is just really interesting. It spurred a lot on me personally, which was where I was just thinking about. Yeah. Keep, keep going. This is really. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, the other thing that I think is important is like, what do we do in the moment, right? Like, what are we responsible for when someone has gone to that downstairs brain, they're in fight, flight, or freeze. The only thing that we can do to help them in that moment is to keep ourselves calm. And so what that requires is a level of mindfulness and experience around our own bodies and brains and what keeps us calm. Um, because truly, if you, if you just do that, if you just work on you yourself, not going into that fight, flight, or freeze, um, that will change the dynamic of that interaction a hundred percent. Um, so sometimes what that means is if we have a colleague or, um, an employee who's lost it, it might mean that we're staying present and just working on our own breathing and that's it. Mm-hmm. That uh, like I, oh, I'm yeah. I like I'm just gonna focus on my own breathing. Um, and we can literally watch like their brains re-engage. Um, and as they come out of it, if we've remained calm, then we're going to be able to be attuned to the needs of that situation. Meaning, um, through those relational pattern patterns, I'm gonna know like okay, she just lost it. I know now she's like here and she's embarrassed. And so what I'm going to say is there's no need to be embarrassed. Let's go for a walk and go get a coffee or don't get her a coffee though. Get her a green tea. (laughs) She doesn't need Green tea has like the, the, like the precursors to L-theanine, which helps us to calm down. So do that, you know, or like something like that, but (laughs) Um, like you want to really, um, but you'll be able to stay attuned and attunement just means I can read what you need without you having to tell me. So that's like a mom, um, of an infant might know like, oh, you know, if their baby starts crying, oh, he's wet. How do you know he's not hungry? Well, that's not his hungry cry. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so things like that. Um, so when we stay attuned to the needs of our colleagues and our, um, franchisees or whoever it might be, then we can respond correctly once they've come to. So the first thing I would say is just remain calm yourself. Um, That might mean just breathing. It might mean thinking about a place that makes you feel calm or a place that you felt the most relaxed and picturing it in your mind and going through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, right? I was on this beach. I felt the rocks under my feet. They were warm because of the sun, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that is the number one thing we can do when someone's losing it. It, it kind of reminds me of forever ago. Um, we're big fan of destigmatizing things, including therapy is one of them. I'm a big fan of therapy. And when I first started, one of the things I used to research was actually how strong and effective leaders are some of the first people to sprint into therapy. Because if you are a high stress 
person, my, my therapist used to always use an example of a water bottle. If we can only fill our water bottle up with so much stress every day, what are you doing to make sure you're starting your day with an empty water bottle full of stress? And as a leader, you're also taking water in from other people because you're responsible for this entire company. And so if, I mean, if, if you don't have your own sanity in check, like that's, that is the first place you have to start so that you can effectively lead with empathy and take care of your team. I think a lot of people miss that mindfulness piece when it comes to being a leader and they kind of skip to the work stress and, and chaos of leading. That's nuts. That's really cool to, to break it down and see it like that and how it's all connected. What do you think, Amanda, are some of the best ways that leaders be- can become more empathetic and just keep yeah. doing this stuff to um, obviously like not enter in those panic modes and also have better choices make, make and also have them make better choices, I guess, through these interactions because we are leading teams and people? Yeah, I think um, exactly what you're talking about, Brett, in terms of like understanding and being open to our own work and what we need to do to care for ourselves. And I think empathy, um, Ingrid, comes from humility. Um, And I, I think that if we are not ourselves humble and practicing humility with our employees, um, then we can't strive for empathy. Meaning, um, if, if I can't see myself in your situation, um, or what you're going through, or then I will never be able to respond from an empathetic place. And so if you, if you truly cannot see yourself in some of the situations, um, with your employees, I would just say, um, we have to seek more proximity, um, like the closer we are to people. And I don't mean like actual proximity, <laughs> getting <laughs> close, right. But like understanding, like, and, and that's where I think there's, um, there's this really weird line in the workplace where we talk about, like, we don't cross like personal boundaries and there's like professional person. And, and that's what I was kind of getting to, like, what we know in psychology is like, that's actual bullshit. And I don't know if I can say that, but, um, okay. We, um, we cannot be healthy human beings and compartmentalize in that way. Um, so if you find yourself lacking empathy as a leader, my guess is, is that you've, um, lost some proximity to those that you're leading. And so what are ways that you can serve them? Um, that might mean that like, a week, you're going to take one person out for lunch just to hear about their life and talk zero about work. Um, or it might mean that you're going to get there early on Fridays and bring a donut for everybody. Or, um, there's a show I watch in each week, you know, like the star employee gets the bear claw, you know, on Friday morning. And I'm like, yes, like I want to be a bear claw boss, Like, like celebrating each other. And, because that also goes into that felt safety. And so suddenly, like if I've gone out to lunch with my boss recently and they've asked me about like, how are your kids doing? Um, you know, what is that looking like for you right now or whatever it might be. Right. And they've asked me that then the next time that my kid is sick and I have to call in and say, Hey, I gotta, I gotta be on zoom today. I can't make it into the office. Cause I've got a sick kid. I'm going to feel differently as an employee when I make that call, but I also know you're probably going to feel differently too, because 
you see me as a whole person. You haven't compartmentalized me into just this worker bee, which I think is what a lot of our generation is kind of pushing back against of like, you can't treat me as like just a production, like, or Mm -hmm. a factory or a, because I'm a whole person. Um, and yet we have not figured out that whole professional and personal boundary thing. Um, but what I know is that I cannot be empathetic of someone if I don't see them as a whole person, if I don't see them, I actually, one of the things that has really helped me with this is I have, um, pictures of my colleagues, like when they call or when they email, like their photo on is a, is a baby picture, um, of them. And it's this really silly, simple thing that I do, but it reminds me like, we're all like these little kids inside. Um, and we're all just operating from that, that place. Um, and we've learned over time how to put on like these, these business suits and these, this makeup and this, but like, we're all just these little kids inside who are just trying to figure it out. Um, and so that's one way for me that I'm reminded constantly, um, of my coworkers being like a holistic person. Wow. So question from kind of the opposite side of that. I mean, first and foremost, Amanda, that was amazing. (laughs) I, you know, I I think both Ingrid and I and everybody listening is going to take a ton of awesome tips away from that as a leader. My next question is more from the employee perspective. What would your advice be to employees who, or just anyone who maybe is finding themselves in a work setting where their direct supervisor or their management leadership team, whatever that looks like, does not bring empathy into the workplace. And by, I guess, sort of twofold, one, are there things we can do as an individual in a company to create a more empathetic work culture or workplace? And then on the flip side, how can we protect ourselves essentially and and speak up when something needs to be said without causing too much of a riff? Or is that just a too healthy of a a work environment to, or unhealthy of a work environment to be in? What's, what's kind of your your thoughts around that standpoint? We need to get out. I would also add, I would love to hear about like narcissistic bosses. I think we all run up against them at certain points in time. And like, again, like Brett said, do we need to get out or how do we deal with those situations? We just gave you like four questions. (laughs) I was actually thinking I should write these down. (laughs) (laughs) We can go back. No, well, I will say the first thing about like narcissistic bosses or like, when do I get out or when do I tell like, this is unhealthy. Um, I would say there isn't like a black and white answer. Like, okay, if this happens, get out. Um, Part of that process has to be our own mindfulness journey of understanding when is too much for me for my body, for my soul, for my spirit, for who I am today with everything going on in my whole life, not just at work, right? Because we might be at a phase in our life where like, I think back to um, before I had kids and I was married and I was in a really, really hard work environment and I loved it. I thrived. Um, I could not be in that environment today because of the other parts of my life. I wouldn't have the emotional capacity to do the things that I needed to do well in that role. So, and that's not good or bad. That just is right. Like there's no judgment. So for, 
for each of us, it might look very different. And you might say, I have to get out of here. This is too unhealthy for me. And someone might fill your place and it's exactly what they need um, because they're in a different, their whole life looks different. Right. Um, so I think the first thing is, um, giving yourself permission to, to become curious about that. Um, and to maybe write down, uh, like maybe that's what we do is we write down, like, these are the things that feel unhealthy to me, um, that happen, right? Like actual things that happen. And then here's how my body responds. And then here's how I deal with those things, um, to metabolize that trauma, to work through those things, um, and kind of create like that flow chart for ourselves and realize if, if we don't have enough on the, like, here's what I do <laughs> column, mm-hmm. um, that means that our bodies are getting overloaded with that. Um, and so that might be a sign that either we need to up kind of our self-care and the way that we're working through these things, or if that's maybe not possible, um, in your situation, then we look at, okay, then I need to change my situation. Um, so I think that would be my general response, um, to that. What was the other questions? <laughs> well, I just, it just kind of, I think the overarching question of do you stay or do you go is really what it comes back to on the employee yeah. side, um, you know, in, in doing what we can to take care of ourselves. I think yeah. sometimes I am so guilty of it. I am a recovering people pleaser. Sometimes I forget I'm living my life for myself and need to be doing what my hopes and goals and dreams are instead of just being a workaholic and and putting the business piece first. And sometimes I I think that's where people can get a little bit lost. Um, But, you know, if maybe there's a situation where an employee feels like they're not receiving empathy from their leader, but maybe their leader's capable of it. Do you have any advice for going into that conversation or uh, maybe subtle ways that the employee can model empathy for others and hope that it catches on. Yeah. One thing I would say is, um, our leaders will not always respond correctly. Like we can't have that expectation of them. Um, and so when, or if your leader has consistently responded incorrectly, I think would be the, the barrier for me, right? Like, cause they're allowed to have bad days too. And they're allowed to have. And so is it that like, okay, there's a pattern here, um, of like a lack of empathy and a lack of understanding. And, you know, maybe I'm feeling that it's getting to that unhealthy place. Um, then yeah, of course we want to, uh, to lean into that and to offer our thoughts. Um, One thing I would say is that can be a super emotional conversation um, and it can stir up a lot in us. And so I would actually suggest either writing down exactly what you want to talk about um, or like the, like, these are my three bullets, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like I want to talk about this instance, this instance, and this instance, and here's what happened and here's how I feel. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell me if you saw things differently, right. Um, or something like that. Um, so either write it down or send it in an email, which also then it's traceable, it's trackable and everything's in writing. Um, and the good thing about an email is you can edit and edit and edit. Um, I will say that anytime I, like, I literally did this last night, like I sent an email that, 
I deleted three times, right? Like it was my fourth, (laughs) it was my fourth draft by the time I sent it. Um, and even then, like my husband was like, that was pretty clear, (laughs) (laughs) but like I I needed it to be clear, but I also didn't want to be rude or offensive or say things that maybe, because sometimes when we're emotional, we all do it. Um, there are facts and then there are facts according to us. And Mm -hmm. so like, I had to take out like the facts according to me and just put in, you know, so, (laughs) um, so I think that the that that is a wisdom, um, in taking your time. The other thing I would say about just empathy in general, and how can we increase it? Um, I said that it doesn't always, you know, our, our leaders don't have to get it right. Every time. The other thing I would say is lean on your colleagues. Um, those are oftentimes the most, um, empathetic because usually they're at similar places in life, maybe not personally, but maybe, um, but also they understand the dynamics maybe more than anyone else, especially more than your boss. Um, and so I would say, um, practice that and create again, that felt safety within the workplace of, Hey, I'm having this problem. I don't want to talk bad about so-and-so, but I just need someone to just say like, you're not crazy or, you know, to hear me and help me decide what my next step should be as a professional in this situation. Positivity, like, you know, I think I've been in situations like that where I've <laughs> talked to a colleague and they're like, well, you're lucky you have a job or things like that. So like, mm-hmm. there's a fine line as far as to like, not being in a place where we're not just feeding them one-liners, but also being empathetic, if that makes sense. I yeah. Think. I mean, learning who your safe people are is important because mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. There's going to be colleagues who are not. And we talk about that in attachment too. like part of mindfulness and understanding our own history is kind of working through and going through um, like a lot of things that happened to us in our childhood. And there are certain people that you should absolutely not do that with right? Like (laughs) you should, you should not be bearing your soul and weeping to someone who doesn't listen well and doesn't make you feel seen safe and secure. And like there, there are certain people who you feel safe with. And so helping yourself to identify who those people are, um, is a part of that process. Yeah. Really good, Amanda. One other area, uh, just in this conversation around trauma in the workplace is, employees with disabilities and how can we, whether it's as leaders, as coworkers, just, we keep coming back to this word empathetic, but that really is what it is. How can we be more empathetic of our coworkers with disabilities or employees with disabilities? How can we navigate those conversations? Um, background leading to that, uh, you know, I have narcolepsy, which is considered a disability. And I was actually diagnosed while working and it was a massive blow to get that news. It was a massive lifestyle change to go through the process. It's taken years of getting the right medication. If I had not had a channel where I could, what I was worried might be over communicating, but just be very, very honest about what I'm going through and have that received appropriately by my boss. I wouldn't be where I am today. I've been very, very lucky Um, And I know that's not always the case. I know I've got a lot of friends that have disabilities that actually don't disclose them because they're scared it might impact their workplace, which then removes that feeling of safety. What would your advice be to people? How can we navigate that better? Or even just 
how can we be cognizant that maybe that's a thing and we don't even know it is in the workspace? Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge question. And I, again, I think it goes back to that idea of felt safety. Um, as a supervisor, um, when we think about working with those with disabilities, we're going to have to think differently than we would um, another employee. And that's just the facts. Um, Mm -hmm. And hopefully that is actually how we do this for everyone who works for us, right? Um, Is is look at them as individuals. And again, I I know I keep saying the word holistic, um, but research shows over and over and over again that if we don't view people holistically, we do not get the results we want. So if, if I am not considering your disability and how that affects your everyday, um, showing up to the office, your everyday, um, getting things done. If I'm not doing that, then I'm not looking at you holistically. And therefore I'm not going to see you as a, as a person. Um, I'm going to see you as a producer. And so how do we create environments where, um, where we are looking at people holistically. Um, and so that might include like literally asking, like I have a friend, um, who is in a wheelchair and I remember one time I said, Hey, can I, she is too. She has like a, um, a a mechanical or motorized. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she has a motorized one and a non-motorized one. And so I remember one day in college, I was like, can I be in your non-motorized wheelchair with you today? And just, you know, and like, so we like went to our, like we went to our classes and we went to lunch and we, and I experienced life the way she experiences it every day. And I had been her friend for years. Um, and I had never seen the things I saw that day. Um, and so the idea of thinking through, um, even like, what does it mean to sit in a zoom for someone who has kids at home Yeah. or what does it mean to, um, whatever it might be, you know, um, to just ask yourself. And I think that's that. I, I love the word curiosity. Um, I myself Mm -hmm. am trying to move from judgmental to curious as a human. Um, and so becoming curious about those that we supervise, those that we lead in our organizations, tell me what it's like to be, tell me what it's like to like a day in the life at work for you. Um, and to understand those. And when we do that, we create felt safety. And when we have employees who feel safe, then we have employees who are giving us their best. Yeah. But at, at the end of the day, I think that's what <laughs> leaders want. They want their teams to produce to the best level of ability. They you know, want to bring in the money. Well, if you want to do that and you want to be a successful business owner, this is the shift to make. It's, it's being more relational. It's viewing your employees as people. Ingrid and I chat, um, a a lot actually about the new generations that are moving in and the, the change in demands we're seeing in hiring and staffing. And one of those pieces I really, truly believe is whether it's millennials or Gen Z or beyond, they're just starting to demand that they are treated like human beings (laughs) in the workplace, which shouldn't, be a huge thing to ask for, but a lot of times it is. And so the more we can embrace that and lean into that, the more productive and profitable that these businesses will be. And I think we'll just keep seeing that becoming bigger and bigger as, you know, the next generations move into the workforce. So what you're saying, Brett, is that empathy affects the bottom line. Yep. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. It all comes back to the bottom line. It starts with empathy. <laughs> Amanda, thanks so much for today. Do you have any final thoughts? Right. We'll let you go here shortly. But no, thank you guys for hosting this conversation. It's such an important conversation because every one of us who is in the workplace is dealing with this on a daily yeah. basis. So thank you for bringing it to light. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you coming. We appreciate you. Yeah, this has been awesome. My goodness. Um, I mean, if you have, if they have more questions or if they want to get a hold of you, how do they, how do they do that? Yeah. To learn more about like trauma-informed care and trauma in the brain, we have a website. Um, it's child.tcu.edu. Um, and then my email is a.purvis at tcu.edu.